Welcome to another Books and Culture podcast with Books and Culture's editor, John Wilson, and I'm Stan Guthrie. And this week, John will be looking at the latest quarterly issue of the Christian Scholars Review. That's right, Stan. I was in England the week before last. You and I were talking about that before we got on the air at a Templeton-funded workshop. And when I got back, I always like coming back from a trip because... I get lots of mail. There's lots of books piled up in my office and also lots of magazines and newspapers and things. And I get bills. Ah, well, <laughs> I get those too at home, yeah, unfortunately. But anyway, there was a tub, one of those plastic mail tubs that uh-huh. was just full of newspapers and magazines. And they're far more than we could ever talk about. I mean, there was a new issue of the journal Victorian Studies, which I enjoy very much. And there was a new issue of First Things, and there were several science magazines. And, you know, just a embarrassment of riches, but there were so many good things. And then just yesterday, I got a new issue of the Englewood Review of Books, which sure. we've done a mm-hmm. podcast on before. I felt there was so much there that I had to pull a couple out of the pile. And so this week and next week, we'll do that. And this week, as you said, we're doing this issue of Christian Scholars Review, which we've talked about before, but this issue, there were two reasons that I wanted to highlight it. And that's the summer issue. Yeah, summer 2013. There are always good things in any issue of CSR, and at the back of each issue, there's a section of short book reviews, and in this issue, I mentioned a couple. One is a book reviewed by the late Susan Cologne, Victorian Parables. That's a book that we also reviewed for Books and Culture in a web-exclusive review. And there's a very good review of that book here by a scholar I don't know, but I will have to get acquainted with, Bernadette Waterman Ward, who's at the University of Dallas. So she reviews that book on Victorian parables. There's also a review of an important book, which, again, we reviewed as well in another web-exclusive piece, David Swartz's book, Moral Minority, The Evangelical Left, in an age of conservatism, and that's uh, reviewed by Philip Byers, who is at Bethel University. So there are lots of things in any given issue, but there are two things in this issue that I particularly wanted to draw our listeners' attention to. This is a theme issue, and the theme is Christian higher education. Mm -hmm. So there's a cluster of four pieces leading off examining this subject from many different perspectives. And I particularly want to draw attention to the first piece by Perry Glanzer, which is called Dispersing the Light, the Status of Christian Higher Education Around the Globe. He looks at the fact that in many parts of the world, especially in Africa, Christian universities are being launched right and left, and how that affects the sense of people in the United States, of their mission as Mm. Christian scholars, and he concludes, Christian scholars are to begin thinking about themselves as first and foremost followers of Christ and not servants to the profession, nation, or some other master. We must begin to think globally about education and our professions with a focus upon the Christian church's story. We must learn and tell the story of Christian higher education from around the globe. Something we have not yet done is evidenced by the fact that a global history of Christian higher education does not exist. We need to tell the story of our educational saints who began small Bible schools that have turned into institutions that serve the church and humanity in tremendous ways. Of course, we must also tell the tragic story of how the world works itself into our best creations and distorts them. 
Finally, North American institutions in particular should think strategically about how they can partner with these institutions around the world to make our education more diverse and global so we can prepare ourselves among this kingdom and the coming kingdom when we celebrate with Christ among all tribes, tongues, and nations. We've talked before about something that they've been doing for a while now in CSR that is interesting, and that is um, they will have a featured review of a book, and then the author of the book that's been reviewed will respond to that. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, the book that is the focus of the exchange was published by Erdman's in 2012 by C. Randall Bradley, and it's called From Memory to Imagination, Reforming the Church's Music. The review essay is by Stephen Guthrie, and then after Mm -hmm. that, Bradley Mm -hmm. responds. And just to give you a little sense of the book at hand and what the issues it raised, this is how Guthrie starts out his piece. We have reached a decisive moment in Western culture, a moment of monumental consequence for the church generally and for its practice of music specifically. This claim is at the heart of C. Randall Bradley's From Memory to Imagination, Reforming the Church's Music. Bradley contends that the cultural shift from modernity to postmodernity has overturned long-held assumptions conventional organizational models, and modes of communication. Such an environment requires nothing less than the Reformation alluded to in the subtitle. The title suggests something of the shape of this Reformation. The music of the church must move from memory to imagination. The church should continue to value its past, of course, and memory should inform current practice. The pressing need, however, is for the church as a whole, not least its musicians, to respond to the challenges facing the contemporary church with creativity, vision, and imagination. The church's worship is in crisis, Bradley contends, because we have denied, and this is a quote, that cultural shifts have been occurring and that these shifts have been affecting the church. A number of factors inhibit the church's response to these changes. These include denial, provincialism, retreating, posturing, control, and power. Likewise, a number of different players have contributed to the current crisis, including the academy, the church, artists, performers, commerce, and the world. What's more, the cultural shifts precipitated by postmodernism have rendered traditional models of ministry ineffective or even counterproductive. The hymnal, for instance, cannot survive because, quote, it's not communal, because it's a power book, because it's designed, these are all quotes for denominational or niche markets, because it's a commercial book, and because it's elitist, and so on. Well, Guthrie actually offers a pretty sympathetic account of the book while also raising some criticisms, in particular a lack of an overarching narrative, a lack of sufficient argument to back up some of these sweeping assertions. But he's actually sympathetic to and commends the author for, you might say, his master story. That is, he accepts the Mm. story about this momentous shift to the postmodern and so on and so on. And then the author responds. Well, a couple things struck me as interesting about this. One thing you know from many conversations that you and I have had over the years is that I find this narrative completely unpersuasive. And it was interesting to me If you had asked me, I would have said, in fact, I have said on more than one occasion, that fortunately, this particular approach to our time and applying it to this specific issue, in this case, the church and its use of music, this is becoming increasingly less fashionable. It was extremely fashionable for some time in the academic world, including the Christian academic world. But Mm. this exchange 
is clearly evidence that in many quarters that persists. And so that's one thing that's interesting to me is simply a reminder that people running around with their hair on fire saying we're in crisis, it's because of the change from modernity to postmodernity. We have to do something now or else everything is going to fall apart. That They're still running around. It seems like we've heard that many oh, times before. Nauseam. So uh, I'm wondering if he's a little late to the party. Is that well, uncharitable? Not from my point of view. But on the other hand, the funny thing is, and by the way, I looked at this book. And again, as you might guess, I didn't think it was something that we needed to pay attention to. So I was a bit surprised when... It was singled out in this way for this treatment. On the other hand, the funny thing is, I've never met Bradley, at least I don't think I have, but I suspect that if I was in a place where I could participate in some of the things that he envisions, which includes a little address that he gave to members of his choir before they went on a tour where they were going to be singing in four different prisons. you know, Mm. There are a lot of the things that he wants to do that, I think Wendy and I would feel, yeah, this is wonderful. This is great. And so another reflection I had was that, and this is true in many cases, not just this specific one, it's not necessary to accept the framing of a certain set of proposals to find some value in them. Right. Moreover, I suppose I would say in his response to Guthrie, Bradley says at a couple points, well, you know, it's true I didn't flesh some of these things out. But I wanted to take the risk of just, this is something that not many people have said. I felt like I needed to take the risk. And, you know, I have to admit, I don't think he's taking much of a risk. But I think what I would say to him is, well, just do what you're doing and find other people who are of like mind and make it happen as best you can and take it from there. He doesn't seem to realize how... The rhetoric of his proposal is exactly the same as the rhetoric I grew up with in evangelical churches in the 1950s, except it was framed differently. No one was talking about postmodernism, but people were always running around saying we were in some kind of crisis, you know. <laughs> That's why we had planned revivals every year, you know. Somebody would come in and we'd have a revival. And That's an interesting <laughs> insight, John. Well, yeah, I would love to see some of what he's doing fleshed out. Even the glimpses that come from this exchange, some of what he's doing sounds very appealing to me. And it's a good reminder that we don't have to set ourselves, even if we might disagree with some of the assumptions, some of the ways that a person is presenting the context of their proposals, we can still listen, we can still wait and see what sort of fruit it bears. Goodness knows there are many different ways which the church can fulfill its mission with music, and this may be helpfully pointing us to one of them.